for being here uh, tonight. We are going to continue our study and seeing the big picture. God at work, His plan for man unfolds and continues to, as I hope we will see tonight. Uh, God is still at work. You know, the same God of the Old Testament is the same God we serve today. And uh, what a blessing to see God at work in the lives of the people that we've studied and in the events uh, that we have looked at. And we will continue to do that, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll get a glimpse of what God did then and hopefully uh, renew our vision on what God can and will do uh, with us uh, today. Uh, as we've mentioned during this study the last few weeks, and we saw last week especially, that after the reign of uh, King Solomon, we know the, the kingdom was, was divided. Um, the northern kingdom, known as Israel, uh, was ruled uh, first by uh, Jeroboam. Uh, the southern kingdom uh, was uh, known as Judah, and it was ruled first by Rehoboam. And as you read through uh, uh, the book of the Kings and the Chronicles, uh, you will see what happened to those kingdoms and a little bit of what their plight was. And as we saw last week, um, the northern kingdom existed for about 209 years. And uh, in those 209 years, 19 consecutive evil kings ruled that northern kingdom of Israel. And as we saw last week as well, uh, despite the warnings of God's faithful messengers, uh, prophets such as Elijah and Elisha, Amos and Hosea, who forcefully, forcefully and, and faithfully uh, called the nation to repent, um, Israel was taken into captivity by the cruel uh, Syrian Empire in 722 B.C. Well, that was the northern kingdom of Israel. The picture in the southern kingdom was a little bit brighter uh, uh, of Judah because occasionally there would be a godly king um, who would emerge and uh, reform all the evils of his predecessors. Uh, this southern kingdom existed for about 136 years after the northern kingdom was captured and, and taken captive. Uh, during that time, there were faithful prophets also, like uh, Obadiah, Joel, Micah, uh, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. And they also called on the people of that southern kingdom to repent uh, and to follow the Lord and forsake their evil ways. But once again, in the end, sin outweighed righteousness. The warnings of those prophets went unheeded, and the southern kingdom of Judah, unfortunately, suffered the same fate that the northern kingdom did. They were captured by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The Babylonians captured the city of Jerusalem 
and the conquest was completed. Well, as was the custom of that time, we learned as well that the conquered peoples, the captives, were deported back to Babylon, um, to what is now the country of Iraq, to serve as slaves These conquered Jews were deported from their homeland back down to Babylon uh, over a period of years and actually in three different groups. There were three deportations. Uh, uh, Daniel was one who was probably in that first group of uh, Jews who were taken from their homeland, captive down to to Babylon. And even in their captivity, there was a faithful remnant of God's people who remained faithful to the Lord even amidst their captivity. The prophet Jeremiah died, passed off the scene, but his message, no doubt, still resonated in the hearts and the minds of those captive Jews. Because you see, uh, the majority of Jeremiah's uh, prophecy uh, was gloom and doom, but this weeping prophet's story contained an important note of hope and restoration because it was, in fact, the message of God's promise to return the people back to their beloved homeland. If you would, look in your Bibles. We'll begin tonight. Look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, if you can turn there uh, for just a few moments. You know, even though the circumstances of God's people had changed, they were no longer free, they were in captivity, And even though their circumstances changed, God's character and God's mercy never changes. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, if you would. Let's begin reading in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And now here's the promise. I will be found of you, saith the Lord. And I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Isn't that a wonderful promise that God gave to his people? 
Do you know, if you're safe tonight, if you're one of God's children, um, you've got a homeland waiting for you to go to also. Your home is secured in heaven. We are told that we are not. We are not permanent residents of where we live right now. We're just pilgrims. We're just passing through. We have a home that we're going to as well. And when I read those verses, I have to think of the heavenly home that God has prepared for us as well. So that's God's promise to those people who were carried away captive in Babylon. Words of hope and words of peace that they could look forward to. And probably for all of the time that those faithful ones were in captivity there in that foreign land for all those years, the words of Jeremiah's prophecy still probably rang true and rang clear in their hearts, even in the midst of their captivity in Babylon. So that's where we are now tonight, and we're going to look tonight at that return back to the homeland. Because you see, even though God's people were captives, God was still in control of the world events. You know, God's the one who controls history. He's the one who reveals his plan and and his purpose. God controls also human affairs. Uh, Those who obey the Lord enjoy his blessing, while those who are disobedient experience discipline. But even the disobedience of God's people, as we see right here, they were disobedient. They were taken into captivity. But even in spite of their disobedience, They could not thwart, they could not derail God's redemptive purpose. And you know, today God is still in control of individuals and nations. Uh, The circumstances, the conditions uh, in our world uh, today as we look around, they, they seem hopeless. And many times I have to remind myself that we feel helpless uh, and unable to do anything about them. But we have to remind ourselves that corrupt people and corrupt nations do not control and do not dictate God's plans and purposes. In spite of our personal conditions and circumstances, in spite of the conditions of the world around us, God is still in control of human affairs, world affairs, and his purpose will be accomplished. Let's look at an example of that tonight. For about 50 years now, the Jewish people had been living in uh, Babylon in captivity, about a thousand miles from their homeland. But something happened in 539 B.C., that disrupted everything in the Middle East and literally changed the entire course of history. You see, in the divine providence of God, the Persians from from that country that we now know as Iran overran the Babylonian capital city that is near Baghdad, Iraq. 
and the Middle East literally changed hands while those Jews were held captive. Mighty Babylon fell to Persia. The Persian Empire now ranged all the way from India in the east, all the way to the North African countries of Egypt and Libya in the west. The greatest empire that the world had ever seen up to that point. Well, during his first year as rule over the kingdom, there was a Persian overlord named Cyrus. And if you would look back at Ezra chapter 1, we'll see, first of all, what it is that Cyrus did. Pagan Persian king, first year of his reign, had just newly conquered Babylon. And what does this Persian king do? Look at Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Ezra tells us, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, now look at this, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the man of his place help him with silver, with gold, and with goods, and with beasts, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. You talk about a miracle. This miraculous turn of events could only have been orchestrated by God himself. Because if you look, if you were to look, and you don't have to turn there, but if you were to look uh, at the uh, uh, book of Isaiah, let me read these verses to you. Isaiah 44, verse 24. This is Isaiah's prophecy 150 years before Cyrus even came on the scene. Prophet Isaiah said this, Thus saith the Lord, Thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord, that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. And what does he say in verse 28? That saith of Cyrus. Here's what God said about Cyrus through the prophet Jeremiah. He is my shepherd, 
and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. That Persian king decreed that those captives, those who had been captured by Babylon, were now free to return back to their homeland. And did you also see that he sent them on their way? Cyrus gave them 5,400 articles of gold and silver that the Babylonians had captured from them, that had confiscated from them, that were now in Babylon. King Cyrus gives all of those back to the people. Some of them were even the sacred furnishings of the temple, and he even ordered their neighbors to send them off, as we read those verses, with gold and silver and livestock to help them on their way. Do you think God does not work in the lives of people? He is in control. That is a true miracle of God, that that even happened. Wasn't by accident, was part of God's plan, was another of God's big picture coming into focus for us. They're on their way back to their homeland. So now about 537 B.C., nearly 70 years after that first deportation of those Jews from their homeland to Babylon, some of these same people are now deported back to their homeland. They're leaving Babylon. No doubt they were filled with excitement, they were filled with anticipation, they were filled with courage and conviction, and they remembered to put first things first. Because two years after they arrived back in their homeland, the foundation for their temple was laid. There was a second group that left Babylon to head back home. About 1,500 this time went. First group was about 42,000, it's estimated. 1,500 went. And in that group was a priest named Ezra. Ezra left Babylon on April the 8th, 458 B.C., and headed back to the homeland. Traveled up the Euphrates River, turned and came back south to the city of Jerusalem, and he, and he actually arrived there four months later. The people had determined that they were going to make the house of God their priority. They're going to make it their focus. They're going to make it their foundation for going back to their country. And if you look at Ezra chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1, we read these words. When the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, and is written, in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. True worship was to come once again and be a reality. But soon, opposition came. Look at chapter 4 of Ezra. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel. He was the, the, the appointed governor there. And to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you. For we seek your God as ye do, and, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Ezer Hadon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. The initial success that those Israelites, those Jews experienced in building and starting to build that temple alarmed those Samaritans and those other people in the land there. They weren't sure what this was all about. We've got uh, uh, a thriving Jewish state now that's come back here. What's that going to mean to the stability in this region? So they hatched this plan to join with them so they could betray them and cease building the temple. They opposed the construction progress vigorously. And they actually hindered it for about six years. You know, any time that you or I commit to serve the Lord and do His will, chances are opposition will come in one form or another. Just mark it down. Start in 2024, committed that you are going to do something for the Lord, and it might not be long until you face a wall of opposition. Now, I don't know where or how that will come. I don't know who that may come from. But chances are, when you commit to doing what God wants you to do and serving Him with all of your heart, when you set out to build that temple for the Lord, you might encounter some opposition in one form or another. You know, today we face a very real enemy, one who would bend every effort to get you to cause you to cease from serving the Lord. But beware. Be vigilant, be brave, be consistent, be persistent in whatever work that is that you're doing for the Lord. Whatever God's called you to do, continue doing that. Don't stop off because of some opposition. Persevere serving the Lord. Remain faithful even if the going gets a little tough. Because you see, there are two things that are, that are the enemies, the favorite, of, the favorite weapons of the enemy that we face. There are two things that he uses against us. 
doubt, and discouragement. What was the result of this opposition? Look at chapter 4 of Ezra, verse 24. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Weary of the enemy's opposition, weary of their resistance, weary of the fight, the Israelites began thinking and they began doubting, maybe this is not the time to build the Lord's house after all. Maybe this is not the time that we should serve God the way He's called us to serve Him. You see, that element of doubt and that element of discouragement caused work on the temple to cease. Meanwhile, people concentrated on settling down and building their own houses. But once again, we see God's hand at work because, you see, that was not His plan for His people. That was not part of the big picture at this point. He intervened, and he intervened by sending the prophet Haggai to those people to shake them out of their complacency and to jumpstart the temple building project once again. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And here's what God tells those people through the prophet Haggai. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye're not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I'll take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. See, those people had cut themselves out of the blessings of God because they were doing what they wanted to do instead of what God wanted them to do. God's will for them was to build His house, not to get consumed with the affairs of their life. Forget the work of the Lord and they were not blessed. You see, 
They sowed a lot of crops, but they didn't reap much. They drank, but they weren't satisfied. Oh, they wore clothes, but none of them had enough. They weren't warm. And he that earneth wages, it's like one putting it into a bag with holes in it. They didn't have anything because they had turned away from doing what God wanted them to do. Well, Zechariah is another prophet. He began his work in Jerusalem during the time of Haggai's ministry. Now, both Zechariah and Haggai wanted to inspire these people to, to continue and to start back building the temple. Work on the temple was important. It was urgent. So they were to do it heartily. They were not to be afraid. Well, thanks to Haggai and Zechariah, the people heeded their message and returned to the all-important work of building the temple. The people were back to work, but so was the opposition. Look at Ezra chapter 5 now. Beginning in verse 3. At the same time came to them Tatnai. He's the governor on this side of the river. And Shethar Boznai and their companions, and said thus unto them, Who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? Then said we unto them, After this manner, what are the names of the men that make this building? But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease till the matter came to Darius. And then they turned answer by letter concerning this matter. The people never could have anticipated what God was going to do next. Tatnai sent a letter to Darius that outlined the claim of the people. The people said, well, Cyrus gave us authority to do this, to work on the temple. Tatnai sends that letter to Darius. And look what happens in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found at Achmetha in the palace that's in the province of the Medes a roll. That's kind of like a scroll. This is the official record that they had discovered. And here's what was written. In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations there <laughs> be strongly laid, the height thereof threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof threescore cubits. And he goes ahead and describes in detail what Cyrus had actually decreed. Work on the temple continued, and in 516 B.C., almost 70 years after it was destroyed by the Babylonians, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem was completed. 
See, God's plan for His people will be fulfilled. God willed for that temple to be built, and it was built. Well, during that time, the Jews now find themselves with a temple, but uh, they don't have any protection for it, and there's no protection for the people living in Jerusalem. Because, you see, it was during that time of Ezra that there was a, a man named Nehemiah, a Jew who was working for the king of Persia in his palace as his cupbearer a thousand miles away. Nehemiah's brother went to see him and he brought word of the condition of Jerusalem. When Nehemiah received word of the condition of his beloved city and its walls, he could not believe his own people had allowed the holy city to lie in ruins. He considered this neglect a national disgrace. And he convinced the Persian king to give him a leave of absence so he could go back to his homeland and oversee the building of the wall of Jerusalem. Well, you know the story, perhaps, probably do. Nehemiah went back. He mobilized and inspired a team of construction workers and crews, and they completed that wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. Jews and non-Jews alike in that area saw this amazing accomplishment as only something that could be done with God's help. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 16 says this, It came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of God. Folks, tonight, as we look at walls that need to be rebuilt, we look at a world in total chaos and disarray. God can build those walls. God might be looking for people who would commit themselves to serve Him, to work for Him, to be effective in carrying out His will. If you were one of those, would you be willing to bear the burden? Would you be willing to construct the wall? Would people, as they look at our lives in years to come, would they be able to look back and would they be able to say, this work was only wrought because of our God? I hope that at the end of my life, if people look back, maybe there'll be some things that they could look at and say, only God could have done that. 
And there are things in your life that you can't control. There are circumstances and conditions in your life that you cannot deal with. But you know what? God can. If you will let him use you, you might build a wall in 52 days. That was a miracle. First the temple, and now the walls of the city were completed. But then the question comes up, why build temples and walls unless the people's hearts are there? Why build temples and walls if people's hearts are still away from the Lord? You see, both Ezra and Nehemiah wanted to ensure that, that pure and sincere worship was in place. So Nehemiah and Ezra let God's word speak for itself. When those walls, when that temple was completed, you know what they did? The priest Ezra gathered the people together for a holy convocation, and he read from the words of the law that Moses had given. He let God's word speak for itself. And do you know that's good advice for all of us, too? If what we're doing is not based solely and completely on the word of God, we're working in vain. Ezra gathered all those people together, and he read probably the laws from the book of Deuteronomy. Then he led those people in pledging their allegiance to God and in promising to live according to his laws and according to the ancient Jewish laws that had been given to Moses. They swore, they made, they made a covenant, they swore that they would not marry outside of the Jewish faith. They promised that they would not do any business on the Sabbath. They promised that they would not neglect taking care of the temple this time. And also there were some things they promised to do. They promised to let the land rest and to cancel all debts every seventh year. They agreed that they would and they promised to pay the temple tax at every year so uh, that the temple could be kept up and cared for. And they also promised to give one-tenth of their harvest. They promised to tithe and bring it to the temple. Because you see, the Jews may have finally learned their lesson. They may now actually be able to grasp God's big picture because to do any less than that, they would risk inviting God to drive them out of their homeland one more time. And that's something they wanted to avoid at all costs. We have just a few minutes left, and I won't be long, but there's one thing that we must look at when we consider this time, this, this return stage of Israel from their captivity in Babylon. You know, an entire generation uh, of uh, Jews had grown up in Babylon. They were there for a long time. And not all of those Jews uh, decided that they would return uh, to their homeland. Some of them decided to stay in Babylon. One man in particular who decided to do that was a man named Mordecai. 
He was living in the city of Susa. Susa, by the way, is the same city that was where the palace was located, where Nehemiah served as the king's cupbearer. Now, did Nehemiah know Mordecai? Maybe. But it was the same palace in Susa, one of the four capital cities of the Persian Empire, where Mordecai lived, where Nehemiah served as the king's cupbearer. This man Mordecai, he had a relative who he adopted as his own daughter. And her Hebrew name was Hadassah. We know her as Esther. Through a series of miraculous events, they both, Mordecai and Esther, became involved in circumstances that involved the king and a royal decree that he made and a devious plan of betrayal. And let's, let's read a little bit in the book of Esther and see how this part of God's story begins to unfold. Esther chapter 1. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces. Now, at the very beginning, we see the power and the greatness of this Persian who is now king. That in those days, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, Shushan is another name for Susa, the city, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days, what a feast that must have been. 180 days, six months it went on. When these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. What a grand and glorious banquet this must be. Can you just picture in your mind how lavish this palace was. And they gave him drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another. Even the gold vessels that they gave all the people to drink, there weren't even any two that were alike. That's how rich and extravagant this party was. Royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. 
None did compel, for so the king had pointed to all the officers of his house, that they should do according to every man's pleasure. According to every man's pleasure. With alcohol involved. This is going to be some kind of bash, isn't it? Drink all you want, as much as you want. Whatever anybody wants, that's what you give to them. Also, Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, now this party's been going on for a week. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, you know what that means, after he got drunk, <laughs> he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkaz. You didn't think I could say all those, did you? <laughs> These were the seven chamberlains, or the servants, or the eunuchs that, that served in the presence of the king. In verse 11, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. What do you think was going through his mind and the mind of the rest of those drunken men that night? But the Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And then there are seven more princes there, Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media. These are the highest ranking officials in the kingdom under the king, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. These seven guys look over at the king, because Vashti is not coming to the drunken party. They see the king's face. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. You see, the law of the Medes and Persians did not allow for somebody to be disobedient. She could have been executed and killed right on the spot. What are they going to do? What is it that they will now do? Well, one of those guys, Mamukin, here's his solution. Look at verse 16. You know, isn't it interesting that somebody always has an opinion? They always have an idea. They always have something that they want to tell you that you should do that they don't have to be responsible for. Did you know that? Did you ever have that happen to you? You know, I think you ought to do this. Because you then will be responsible and I won't. Look at verse 16. Mimucan, 
This guy's got it all figured out. Here, here, here's what we're going to do, king. We got this under control. Mamukin answered before the king and the princes, Vashti, the queen, hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. He warns King Ahasuerus that if Queen Vashti is not punished for disobeying the king, the rest of the kingdom is going to go to rack and ruin because throughout the entire kingdom, all of the women of this kingdom, king, are going to disobey their husbands. You're on the spot, buddy. If you don't act, this kingdom is going to rack and in ruin. Verse 19, if it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. You got a fire. She's not allowed to be the queen anymore, king. That's what we got to do. That's the plan. That's what will work. That's what we have to do. Well, the search was on now for a new queen. The king's decree that girls from throughout the kingdom be brought into his harem was irrefutable, it was irrevocable, and it was the law of the Medes and Persians that could never be changed, amended, or canceled. It would be the law of the land forever. The girls were called to come, and there would be among them one who would be chosen to be the next queen of Persia. You know the rest of the story of Queen Esther. In chapter 5, and we'll stop, in chapter 5, Esther goes in to this king, enters into his throne room. Now, Esther is a Jew. The king does not know that. Haman wants to destroy all of the Jews, exterminate all of them. But again, that's not God's plan. That's not part of the big picture. Because you see, Queen Esther in chapter 5 enters into the king's throne room. You don't do that to the Persian king unless you're invited. Vashti was no longer the queen because she did not come when he called her. Esther is in just as much danger by going in without being invited. Esther's taken her life into her hands. She presents a request to the most powerful man in the world at that time that she's going to put on a party and wants the king to come along with Haman who hatched the plot to destroy all of the Jews in the kingdom. She wanted Haman to attend a banquet that she would prepare along with the king. And in chapter 7, we see 
the rest of the story. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said unto Esther on the second day of the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? It shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then King Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst resume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. And the king said, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? Word went out of the king's mouth, and they covered Haman's face." And what happened? Haman was hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. What does this have to do with God's big picture? Let's see God's hand in this story. In the sovereign providence of God, a young, humble Jewish maiden became the queen of the greatest empire in the world at that time. An evil man named Haman, because of his hatred of the Jews, determined to exterminate all of them from the face of the earth. God used Queen Esther to save her people, the entire nation of Israel. And as a result, God providentially preserved the entire nation of the Jews. What would have happened had he not... Had Esther not come on the scene to request that the Jews be spared, there would be no nation of Jews. There would be no Israel, which means there would be no lineage or any Messiah or any Savior. No Jews would mean no Jesus, no Messiah, and no Savior. It was through one woman, Queen Esther. In God's big picture, one humble little Jewish girl became the queen and preserved the bloodline of our Savior Jesus Christ. God can use any one of us if we will let him. If we'll be humble, if we will be obedient to him, he might do great things.
through us. Let's pray. Lord, as we read and study your word, it comes alive when we see it in light of your big picture. Lord, we know that nothing we can do will thwart your plan. Nothing will derail your purpose for your people. Nothing will sidetrack your redemptive plan for mankind. And Lord, help us be a a part of it. Lord, help us be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Help us to live our lives in obedience to you, to follow your will and your word and your way and not our own. Help us to commit, as, as we are just a couple weeks from this brand new year that you're going to give us, help us commit to living our lives in accordance with your will and your word and your way. And give us the strength and the faith to believe you to do great things through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.